0: Permission to deviate from the agenda a little bit for a second this morning. I'm over here. I'm not up there. I'm over here. If you can't, I'm. I'm kind of short, so here I am. Um, this week, right? Oops. This week is a uh, stressful week for the McFadden family. Uh, Miss Andrea is going to go in for surgery on Wednesday to have a non-cancerous tumor removed from the back of your brain, and so I'd like. Now, for us, before we get into God's Word, Exodus chapter 5, I'd like for us as a church family, if Brother Ron McIntyre and Mark, our two elders, um, Danny's traveling today, Pastor Matt's still traveling, if you would, um, let's all just go to the Lord in prayer together and petition on behalf of Andrea here. Let's pray. Lord, we believe sincerely in the last verse of the song that we just sang that all that we are, that all that we have, that all that we know is held in your sovereign and powerful hands. And so, Lord, there is no safer place that Andrea could be than in your will and in your grace. We lift her up before you and ask for success this week even now we pray for the doctor the surgeon his team of nurses that they might be your tools and your instruments for healing lord that you would drive away all the symptoms that andrea has been having the difficulty that this has produced in her life i lift up matt before you her husband and ask that you would make him especially strong this week especially attentive, all the things going on, Lord, we we pray and ask um, for the farm to be taken care of while they're gone, for the house, the kids to be well cared for by extended family and by this church family. And we just lift all these things up before you, Lord, and ask that you would place your sovereign hand, that you would conduct things this week in such a way that we would be able to return soon and give glory to you for the miraculous work you've done with Andrea. We love this family. They're a family that gives so much to others and is concerned so much for others. Help us in this time to minister to them. We lift up these things before you, Lord Jesus, and we trust you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Exodus 5. Exodus 5, all 23 verses, title of the passage is Making Bricks Without Straw, starting in verse 1, follow along with me. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. The Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey the Lord? And moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then he said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, Why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now many, And you make them rest from their burdens. The same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen. You shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose upon them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to God. Let heavier work be laid on the men, that they may labor at it, and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves, wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for the straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten, and they were asked, Why have you not done all the task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, Make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. But he said, You are idle. "'and sacrifice to the Lord. "'Go now and work. "'No straw will be given to you, "'but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. "'The foreman of the people of Israel saw "'that they were in trouble when they said, "'You shall by no means reduce the number of bricks "'your daily task each day. "'They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them "'as they came out from Pharaoh, and they said to them, "'The Lord look on you and judge, "'because you have made a stink "'in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants.' And have put a sword in the hand to kill us. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. May God add the blessing to the reading of his word and deliver the hearers. You'll see, deliverance is on the way. We're going to finish up in six, chapter 6, verse 1 today, but we'll wait to that point before we read that. As Japanese planes returned to their carrier groups and the Japanese Navy, Navy steamed west, leaving Pearl Harbor in its wake, most involved with the attack on Pearl in 1941, who were Japanese, were celebrating its success. They believed that they had dealt a lethal blow to the United States that would seriously impede the ability of the U.S. to enter the war. Except for one man, Admiral Yamamoto, who was the brains behind the operation and the commander in charge of the fleet that struck Pearl. He spent December 8th, the day after Pearl Harbor, in a deep, sunken depression. Unlike his overconfident peers, Yamamoto did not believe that Japan could win a protracted war with the United States. Moreover, he seemed later to have believed that the Pearl Harbor attack had been a blunder strategically, morally, and politically, even though he was the person who originated the idea of a surprise attack on that military installation. He wrote in his journal that despite the apparent success of the attack, Quote, I fear we have only awoken a what? A sleeping giant. And he was right. History proved him correct. God has seen and heard the persecution of his people, Israel, under the yoke of the Egyptians. He is on his way to rescue them. The rescue plan is in full motion. The cup of wrath is full with Egypt. And this is the last plague, so to speak, of Pharaoh on the people of God. And this is the plague that he brings down. It's the it's the it's the latest insulation of his wrath versus God's son, or namely the Israelites, before God pours out his wrath on the Egyptians. This is the last straw all pun intended. This is the last straw. The title of my sermon today is, The Straw That Crushed the Serpent's Head. The Straw That Crushed the Serpent's Head. On the surface of this passage, the apparent theme is the persecution of God's people and their struggle to believe through it. I want to make three points about persecution of God's people today from this text. Number one, we're going to understand what persecution is from a biblical perspective and show that it is on display here in chapter 5, verses 1 through 14. Then we're going to explore the wrong reaction to persecution, which is verses 15 through 21. And finally, I want to talk about the right reaction to persecution that is displayed by Moses in verse 22 and 23, kind of. He kind of has the right reaction to persecution. And then finally, God's reaction to to all of this comes in chapter 6, verse 1. So, what is persecution from a biblical perspective? Well, there is an ongoing war for the cosmos raging between God and Satan, the evil one, the serpent. It has been taking place since the serpent, the evil one, attempted to undermine the authority of God in heaven and was cast down from there. God loves his creation and mankind is the crown jewel of his creation. And therefore, since the serpent was not successful in usurping the authority of God in heaven, he chose to undermine the authority of God in the heart and minds of the ones who bear his image, which is us, it's humanity. This is the scene that we have in the Garden of Eden where Satan challenges and calls into question the commandment and intentions of God with Adam and and Eve. He calls into question the words of God. He is successful to a point, but from this very moment, what was a somewhat cold war between the Lord and his enemy, the evil one, became a really hot war, and it began to rage. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, 15, verse 15, after the fall, and within the curse, there is a script for how this war for the cosmos is going to play out. Verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Again, I will put enmity, or strife, some translations say, between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, her offspring. He shall crush your head, And you shall bruise his heel. So, enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the serpent being those who are of the evil one, who belong to him. The seed of the woman being God's chosen people. It's those, if you think back to last week, it's those whose hearts remain hard, the seed of the serpent, and those whose hearts are softened by God, the seed of Eve. And we see this played out almost immediately. With Cain and Abel, Abel loves the Lord and is pleasing to the Lord. And his brother, Cain, hates him and ultimately kills him for it. Cain is the seed of the serpent. Where am I getting that from? Well, if you go to 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, it says, We should not be like Cain. Look at these words. Who was of the evil one. He was of the evil one. Adds a little bit more depth to when Jesus tells the Pharisees that their father is who? Not God, but the devil. He's telling them, you are of the seed of the serpent. You are not of God. Abel is the son of promise, and it appears that the serpent thwarted God in that story. But that's not what took place. God raises up Seth, another son, and through Seth comes Noah, and the promises of God march on. So we have the serpent bruising the heel, doing damage, but really just awakening the sleeping giant, so to speak, and getting defeated. That's the script, that's the war for the cosmos. Or consider a more relevant scene to our passage, it's in chapter, Exodus chapter 1, where the people of God are growing numerous, and it's making Pharaoh nervous because there might be an uprising. So he commands all the baby boy, boys, first of all, he, he tells the Hebrew midwives, and they civilly disobey, right? They don't do it. But then, because they're not accomplishing what Pharaoh is looking for, he tells all the people of Egypt to kill the baby boys... Of the Hebrews. Thousands of baby boys are murdered, sacrificed to the Egyptian gods by being fed to the crocodiles. Quite a bruising of the heel. Pastor Matt preached this text and titled it Unstoppable Blessing. And he was hitting on this theme, so I don't want to belabor it too long, except just to notice that when Satan is attacking, when he sets out to bruise the heel, there is death, there is suffering and there is toil. And when Yahweh delivers His people, there's the exact opposite. There is life, there is flourishing, and there is rest. The evil one hates God. The serpent hates Him. And we bear the image of God. And so therefore, the serpent hates us. He hates us. Murder is heinous because it is the willful destruction of the image of God. Although often we forget that there is enmity between us and the serpent, we forget that often, that there is this war for the cosmos raging, Satan never forgets. He, not for one solitary moment since Genesis 3.15, has he rested from acting upon his hatred for God, and thus his hatred for us, and that is where persecution comes from. Satan hating God and hating us and seeking to do as much damage, damage to the glory and image of God as he possibly can, seeking to discourage the people of God and their belief in the promises of God. But praise God, he is sovereign And this scenario always plays out according to the script we find in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And I could go on and on and on with biblical examples, but I think you get the point. And for those of you that want to muse on this afternoon or maybe later this week, the New Testament parallel to Exodus chapter 1 is Matthew 2, when Herod kills baby boys in and around Bethlehem in another attempt to snuff out the firstborn son, right, of God. And to do damage to God as well. The parallels just go on and on and on. now that we have framed this persecution in light of the war for the cosmos, let's look at Exodus 5 and see that this is just another installment of the serpent bruising the heel of God's firstborn son, Israel. Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh and say, "...thus saith the Lord." Which Pharaoh would have been familiar with what was going on there when they stepped in and said, "...thus saith the Lord." he knew this wasn't these he knew that these men believed themselves to be representing a deistic a godlike word because pharaoh had his oracles and prophets and so forth and they would have said things like thus saith ra They go in, they say, thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may worship me in the wilderness. And Pharaoh does exactly what God said he was going to do. He says, no. Verse 2, but Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Pharaoh knows who Yahweh is. He knows who he is. He has two million slaves living in his that he's terrified of, remember. He wants to get rid of, he wants to bring their numbers down. And through this dynasty, as long as they've been his slaves, they have flourished and multiplied. He knows who Yahweh is. This is the God of two million strong. He is aware of the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What he is doing here is mocking him. He's calling into question the authority of God over him to make commands of him. Sounds like the behavior of the serpent, doesn't it? Not so, ironically, Egypt's mascot. Then Moses and Aaron, they backpedal a little bit, saying something that God doesn't explicitly tell them to say, at least not recorded for us in Scripture. Well, if you don't let us go for a temporary journey into the wilderness, God might fall on us with pestilence. And in that way, they're kind of saying, he might fall on all of us. He might fall on you too, Pharaoh. So they're trying kind of another angle, another tactic, but it doesn't work. Then the serpent strikes his blow. He is going to seek to discredit Moses and God in the eyes of the people by making their lives miserable. He wants to discourage belief in the words and promises of God. If you have time to think about traveling into the wilderness to worship the Lord, then you are lazy and you are idle. And so you will. You think you've worked hard before. You're not going to have time to think about this. We're going to long shifts we're going to no, no straw for your bricks. From what I can understand, dried bricks need straw because the straw acts like a type of rebar, like rebar does in cement. It helps hold the form and it allows them to dry evenly. So without straw, bricks crack and break and can't bear much of a load. so they have to gather their own straw now which is going to be substandard to the straw they were getting from the egyptians and on the other end the bricks are going to be prone to break and so the quota not decreased they've got they they are slowed down because they have to get their own straw now and then the bricks they're making are not good bricks, and so they're breaking. Essentially, what he is doing is setting them up for failure and creating a reason to persecute them. Think about, think about the, how, how the serpent, the evil one, works in the world, almost self-destructively at times. Giving no care for who the damage gets done to, but somewhat just swinging wildly just to cause damage, right? Who are they making these bricks for? Pharaoh. What are they building with said bricks? Pyramids, pagan temples, palaces. He is willing to forego the building up of his own kingdom, so to speak, just to punish God's people, just to look for an excuse to persecute them. And his real motive comes out in chapter 5, verse 9. It says this, Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. To lying words. Boy, that's gaslighting if I've ever seen it. Gaslighting is a rhetorical tactic by which you blame somebody of doing something that you're actually doing to them. The serpent is the one lying. Pharaoh is the liar and he's blaming god and calling into question the words of god he wants the people of god to disbelieve the words of moses which are the words of god that they might they just believed and rejoiced over in chapter 4 if you go back just just a, a, a page Chapter 4, really, in the the Pew Bible, you don't even have to go back the page. It's just right there on the same page. At the end of chapter 4, they're all praising and believing. Verse 31, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel, they had seen their affliction. They bowed their heads and worshiped. The evil one wasn't real keen on that, so he tried to break it down. The fundamental struggle, which is part of the reason I think God sets things up and orchestrates things the way that He did, He knew that the fundamental struggle for the people of Israel was not going to be Pharaoh. Pharaoh's about to get mollywopped in Posey County vocabulary. He's about to be humiliated. Chapter after chapter after chapter after chapter of humiliation of him and his gods. Pharaoh isn't the main obstacle. For the people of God. Their belief is the main obstacle for the people of God. And it's Moses' struggle too. They struggle to believe the authority behind, thus saith the Lord. And we really see it on display in the second point. They have the wrong reaction to this persecution. Look to the text, verse 14. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all of your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past? The foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat us? Why do you treat your, that's an important word, servants? They call themselves Pharaoh's servants. No straw has been given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. The taskmasters, so in this, you can get a little confusing in here. You have Pharaoh, you have Egyptian taskmasters, you have these taskmasters who then delegated authority and rose up um, national Hebrew people that were a little bit above the other slaves to be the foremen of those people that they might coordinate the work that the slaves were doing. And when they couldn't meet their quota, they took those foremen and they beat them. And here's the key to their mistake. In their distress, where do they turn? Who do they go to? Pharaoh. Who do the Israelite foremen plead with, the serpent. They go back to the serpent and essentially ask him to stop acting like the serpent. They call themselves his servants. He has no interest in delivering them, actually quite the opposite. He hates them. He's vexed that murdering their baby boys 80-ish years ago did nothing to stop the fruitfulness of God's people. Did you catch that in verse 5? The unstoppable blessings of God. And Pharaoh said, Behold, the people of the land are now what? Many. When the persecution is taking place, people of God, listen to me, don't barter with the serpent. Don't sell out to gain a little comfort. God has said he's going to deliver them. The only thing the people of God should have had for Pharaoh, the serpent, was a good hearty laugh. And a go ahead and get your licks in now, buddy, because your time is coming. But amidst the pain that the serpent is causing them, they struggle to believe that the God of their fathers who sent Moses is going to make good on his promise and they blame Moses and Aaron, and they're angry with them. There's an application point here to be drawn out. It seems obvious here and now to us that the anger of the foreman is pointed in the wrong direction. But in our sin and disbelief and losing sight of the war for the cosmos that's raging around us, is it not very tempting to get angry when someone's thus saith the Lord causes a, dis- excuse me, causes a disruption and our otherwise comfortable habit of serving the serpent. They had gotten used to the shackles of slavery, and old habits die hard. Romans 6 says that we were slaves, slaves to sin, slaves to the serpent. So here's my application point for you. Be careful... That when by his word God is trying to set you free, you do not cling to the sin and hate the messenger who came with freedom on their lips. Do you understand what I'm saying? When we're entrenched, we almost, we have like, um, like Stockholm Syndrome, we, we are used to our way of life, used to our sinful patterns in such a way that when somebody comes and says, hey, word of God says, thus saith the Lord, your sinful pattern is a sinful pattern. It's tough. It's difficult. Be not like the foreman of the Israelites who couldn't recognize God's messenger for who they were, trying to deliver freedom to them. Now, thirdly, Moses does a little better than these foremen. This is what he does right. Instead of pleading to the serpent, he pleads to the Lord. He pleads to God. And that's the third point. The right reaction to persecution is to plead to the Lord. Because in doing so, you are expressing your belief that he is the one who can deliver you. Which, by the way, they went and tried to deal with the serpent. Did it change the serpent's mind? No. He still hated him. And he doubled down. Verses 22 and 23. Moses, though, Moses turned to the Lord and he said this, O oh Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. There is so much wrong with what Moses says here. I mean, if we were going to dissect this thing, it is sin. One side up and right down the other. But as we learned last week, Moses is still battling with his hard heart and his lack of faith and believing in the God who said he's going to deliver his people. There's so much wrong here. He's intimating that God is the author of evil, not Pharaoh. He's saying that God made a mistake in sending him and that God is not keeping his promise to his people. So we have Moses, from Moses a display of disbelief But who is he saying it to? This is the important part. Who is he bellyaching to? The Lord. To God. Which means underneath the sinful things that he's saying is faith that the Lord is the one who can deliver him and deliver them. He's at least falling flat on his face in the right direction, right? Right? And the Lord sees that, and in his mercy, he just ignores what came out of Moses' mouth and responds to Moses in Exodus chapter 6, verse 1. We're not going any farther, because that's Pastor Matt's sermon to preach next, but look at verse 1. God just, I mean, you think if God would just get mad again at Moses or punish him or whatnot. No, that's not what the Lord does. He, instead, he encourages Moses, continuing to soften his heart. Verse 1, But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see. This is it. This is the straw. This is it. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand, he will send them out. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And then, as I said before, the Lord proceeds to absolutely humiliate the serpent for the next several chapters. The serpent may bruise the heel, but his head will be crushed. It is unwise to think that all the suffering we face in this life is the product of spiritual warfare between the seed of the serpent and the seed of Eve. I'm not contending that. Sometimes we suffer because we sin. And sin has consequences often very negative consequences that cause causes ourselves suffering. I have a saying as a wrestling coach, it's a little terse, so bear with me. When I see one of my young men doing something well, let's just say not the maybe they're not being the brightest bulb in the drawer, right? I say play stupid games, win stupid prizes had a young man this week just, I said, I've said it a hundred times, don't walk on the rolled up mats, don't walk on the rolled up mats, because they're about this high. And I don't know if you've ever seen elementary school wrestlers, but they're not real coordinated. They can't play basketball, so they kick them over to me. And a young man was doing that, and I said, don't do that. And what did he do, of course? Fell off the mat. And after he you know, got his wits back about him and made sure his arm wasn't broken or something crazy, I said, what does Coach Kurt say? He says, play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Yes. That's it. When we sin, there's consequences. When we do wrong according to God's word, that's just the way the world works. But make no mistake about it. If you are a Christian, you are the seed of, of Eve. And there is enmity between you and the serpent. Not only him, but also all of his seed. That is those people who have hard hearts. And I know that's hard to wrap our minds around, but it's not just Satan himself that has enmity towards you. That's not what the curse says. It also says between you and the seed of the serpent. In the same way this script is played out over and over and over again in the scriptures, it's going to be played out with you. Maybe you're passed over for jobs or promotions, barred from being in the, the in crowd, the cool mom crowd or the cool dad crowd, maybe just being mistreated because you are a Christian. Maybe being called a bigot, accused of being hateful because you just love people enough to say true things. Maybe your clothes are made fun of. Maybe you're made fun of because you don't watch certain shows or you don't use certain words or the number of kids that you have. Belittled because you stay at home. Cut from the team because you won't play on Sundays called weird because you homeschool, told to pipe down about the joy you have and leave all that Jesus stuff at home. China has implemented a social credit score where Christians that go to non-state approved churches, they can be arrested, but at very least, they have a tracking software for their people. Or maybe if you spend time doing things or speaking to people that also don't have a very good social credit score or they're not on the state approved list, They're barred access from loans or jobs in the good grocery stores. North Korea Christians are just snuffed out, murdered, sent to prison camps. Or maybe like Job, Satan is allowed to touch your flesh, to afflict you with something for no rhyme or reason, completely out of your control. What can we learn from Exodus chapter 5? How does one spiritually survive the serpent strike to the heel? And I chose my words carefully there because this isn't how to physically survive it, because the serpent strike to the heel might mean not physically surviving it. But spiritually, how do you not fall away from the faith and prove yourself to have a hard heart? How do you spiritually survive the strike? of the serpent? Well, first by recognizing it for what it is. It's enmity between you as an image-bearer of God and the serpent. It's easy to throw a pity party and act like this is the first time in the history of humanity that a serpent has picked on anyone, but I hope from the sermon today you'd see that's definitely not true. It's not the first time, not even close. This has been going on for a long time. Framing it in light of eternity is the reason that James tells us to consider it pure joy when we receive these trials, these heel strikes from the serpent. Because that means we are counted righteous enough that he thinks by striking us he can rob God of glory. Second, so the first way of dealing with it. Recognize it for what it is. Second, don't try to befriend the snake. Don't compromise your Christian integrity to fit in. Don't watch the show so you can talk around the water cooler. Don't buy the immodest clothing to to fit in on the beach. Don't imbibe in more than you should. Don't stop telling people the truth so that they will hate you less. There is this myth that has spread like a disease amongst evangelical churches, it's this word, winsomeness, winsomeness. If we would just be winsome enough, the hard-hearted people will love us. No, they won't. No, they won't. Because they are enslaved to the serpent, and they believe his lies, and he hates you. He hates you. There is no winning them over apart from God softening their hearts, their belief in the gospel. And it is a gospel that is preached the loudest through conviction, not compromise. You don't need the approval of the serpent because God's grace is sufficient for you. Lastly, we can spiritually survive the war For the cosmos, by remembering that bite at our heels as he may, the serpent's head is going to be crushed by the seed of Eve. So when you feel the sting, go to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. This is a good one. That's why I chose this verse. Do thy friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In his arms he'll take and shield thee. Thou wilt find a solace there. Even if your words aren't perfect, and we see in the end of chapter 5, Moses' words definitely were not perfect. God hears our cries and much, much more Our cries mean much more than we could fathom. In Revelation chapter 8, it says that our cries, the cries of the saints, the prayers of the saints are being stored up in golden bowls and that they're going to be poured out over all the earth when Christ returns and all these prayers are going to be what initiates the eradication of the serpent and his seed forever. Did you know that? Your prayers are what God... Your prayers, when you're being persecuted and you're, you're, you're not vocabulary correct, wrong theology pleading, not, not exactly spot on, inarticulate, too, moanings too deep for words, grieving moments that you have before God because Satan is striking your heel. It's going in a golden bowl to be stored up So that when Jesus returns to make all things new once again, amen, he's going to pour that out. And that's going to be what purges. I don't want to trouble God with my, I don't want to trouble him with that. Trouble him with it. Trouble him with it. He hears the cries of his people, and he will deliver us. So when you suffer for no other reason than you love Christ and are trying to please him, remember Exodus chapter 5. And beyond that, remember that on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. The climax of Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 comes at the foot of the cross George Whitfield preached a sermon on Genesis 3 and I love this quote from him hear it This promise meaning the promise in Genesis 3 was literally fulfilled in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ Satan bruised his heel when he tempted him for 40 days together in the wilderness he bruised his heel when he raised him up, strong persecution came against him during his time of public ministry. He, in an especial manner, bruised his heel. When our Lord complained that his soul was full of exceeding sorrow, even unto death, and he sweat great drops of blood falling upon the ground in the garden, he bruised his heel. And when he put it into the heart of Judas to betray him, he bruised him. Yet most of all, when his emissaries nailed him to an accursed tree, and our Lord cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Yet in all this, the blessed Jesus, the seed of the woman, crushed Satan's accursed head. For in that he was tempted, he was able to succeed By his stripes we are healed. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. By dying he destroyed him and had the power of death, that is the devil. He thereby spoiled the principalities and the powers and made show of them openly, triumphing over them at the cross. The serpent bruised our Savior, and by those stripes we are delivered from slavery. What he intended to use to defame and rob God of glory, the Lord used to make his name famous and get glory from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. So remember this, brothers and sisters, remember this. When you hear that hiss and you feel the sting, give the serpent exactly what he deserves. A good old horse laugh. And then tell him, get your licks in now because your day, the day, is coming. Let's pray.